In waiting for that recognition, you are giving away a lot of your power. Um, and in um, taking on board too much of the ridiculous stuff that people said about my appearance, um, I would be giving away that power. Welcome back to season two of the Business Culture Podcast, a platform to learn through the power of context and story. It's great to be back with you. This season is all about impact. I'll be chatting to impact makers across industries and geographies to understand how they have made true impact on their customers, colleagues, and communities. In this episode, I got to chat with Alma Smith. Having recently covered both the Cricket and the Rugby World Cups in England and Japan respectively, Alma graciously gives us a behind-the-scenes perspective on what it's like to create a personal brand in the world of content creation, an individual who continues to make global impact in very much her own authentic way. Let's hear her story. One thing that that struck sort of a chord with me in our, when we discussed it before is that you didn't really ever want to be a presenter per se up front. It wasn't your end goal necessarily. No, so I, contrary to what people think, I consider myself a broadcast specialist who works in particularly these days, rugby, mm-hmm. a bit of cricket, sport generally. Um, but I think, I think I see myself primarily as someone who makes content often for video, sometimes radio. Um, but I think of, of ways to communicate stories that um, make people feel part of a greater whole. Mm. Um, and I think for me, the relationship with rugby started long before I realized that it was there. I was nine years old in 95. So obviously the Rugby World Cup made a massive impact on me. Um, I remember the first democratic election, the fear. We were living in Bloemfontein at that stage. I couldn't speak English to save my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there was obviously, you know, this, this great unknown new South Africa that we didn't know where we fit in. And then the Rugby World Cup kind of gave us that cultural answer, that kind of legitimacy that we have a mm. contribution to make, um, particularly being Afrikaans. And then um, I studied law, but I, I loved radio. I got uh, my first radio as a birthday gift when I turned 11, and I obsessively listened to 5FM. And when I was in high school, I decided that I wanted to work for 5FM. Um, as what, I wasn't quite sure. Um, TV wasn't really my plan. Radio really was mm. the dream. And I, I knew already when I was about 12 what I wanted to study down to almost, you know, the subjects I wanted to take. I knew I wanted to study law. Um, but I didn't see myself only as an attorney. I always had this idea that I would probably have to do a few things because I've always had a wide range of interests. And so mm. radio was um, always going to be part of something. You know, it was always going to be part of the plan. So mm. I started studying or I started in community radio when I was in high school. Um, there was a community radio station in, in Paul where I went to high school. Uh, radio Casey, 108.8 FM, the sound that sets you free. And most of our <laughs> listeners were in prison because uh, Paul has plenty of prisons. Yeah. And um, so they would listen to us from prison. And I, I co-hosted a, a Saturday evening show. Um, and so that was my first in into radio. I studied Lord Stellenbosch and then worked at MFM and really immersed myself 
in in that experience. Absolutely loved every moment of it. But I also mm. loved studying law. And then at the end of my degree, um, I had gained acceptance to a very small uh, postgraduate journalism program at Stellenbosch that they only took 20 students a year for. But then in the same week, I got offered a TV presenting job with MCAR, which was a music channel, um, a lifestyle channel on DSTV, and had to make a call um, and submitted a late entry to do a similar kind of journ postgrad at WITS, got accepted, mm. um, and then moved to Joburg with what I could fit into my mom's Corolla in a week. Um, <laughs> and then started hosting this music TV show, did my postgrad studies at WITS, um, actually worked as a football reporter covering the Clever Boys at WITS um, as well for the newspaper wow. while I was doing this music show. So on Thursdays, I was this rock and roll chick with Mohawk and, you know, crazy makeup on TV going, fuck off, police card. And then for the rest of the week, I was covering football and doing the layout of the sure. newspaper okay. at WITS. And then worked at 5FM and MCAR and really immersed myself in the music scene. I hosted Opikopi for about, I went to Opikopi for about 12 years straight. I was the MC for about five or six of them. Um, mm -hmm. Interviewed international musicians like Jared Leto and, you know, like a whole list of them. Everyone who came to South Africa, we featured um, and, and worked at 5FM behind the scenes as music compiler and eventually as DJ. So I had built a pretty solid kind of career in music for five mm. years before Supersport announced that they were going to take a woman to the Rugby World Cup. Um, and I, I watched this okay. with keen interest, but I initially thought they were looking for a Nas Buerta or a Nick Mallet, someone who mm. had um, uh, an analyst's level of experience and who would be able to do commentary. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously that wasn't me. I went to Paul Jim. Um, I studied at Stellenbosch. I had, you know, kind of great interest in cultural affinity with rugby, but um, I didn't consider myself an analyst. And then mm. I saw the first few rounds of auditions and they were asking contestants things like, how long is a half in rugby? And then she would say, which half? And I cringed for my kind. And um, I was very hesitant about entering because I didn't want to fail because I was yeah. already working in TV, a lot of the same crew, what people don't know is the same people who run, who hold the cameras and who do the graphics and who work in the machine mm. at Supersport also worked for Kiknet and for MCAR, where I was at that stage doing pretty well as a presenter. So I'd established mm -hmm. myself and I didn't want to kind of throw my hat in the ring and something and then, you know, fail horribly. Yeah. Um, so I checked out the opposition first and then mm -hmm. <laughs> after a while checking out the opposition at the last opportunity that you could uh, audition, I went to the audition. Um, and obviously now I'm really glad that I did. But at the time it was it was very scary because there was also quite a bit of backlash to this idea that they were now going to pluck a woman from relative obscurity and then she just gets a free pass to go to the Rugby World Cup. Mm. Um, and, and that was conflicting for me. Um, I worked with Gareth Cliff closely at that stage at 5FM and um, considered him a colleague that I got along with well. And he was one of the mm. people who tweeted um, a quite arrogant takedown of the whole concept of Lady Rugger. And I still replied to him and said, 
if this is the only way that someone like me will get an opportunity to work in a field that I never deemed a real mm. gap for myself, then how is this bad? How is it bad for women? But also, how is it bad for the sport if you are visibly and literally opening the doors and showing inclusion? Not showing that I'm a former player who knows everything about rugby. Just showing mm. that I can ask questions that will make the sport more accessible to a wider variety of people. If I could care about rugby enough to study it and ask insightful questions that open the appreciation of it up to a wider variety of people, how is that bad for rugby? Mm. Yeah. Um, and and so it, it, it was an attractive opportunity for me because I have always been drawn to the idea of trying to work on the innovative edge of things. So at MCAR and at 5FM, at MCAR, we were obviously, you know, breaking some, some new ground. At 5FM, mm. I was breaking ground because people used to laugh in my face when I said that I wanted to work there because I'm Afrikaans and there really was this steady stream of Rhodes Music Radio people that would just automatically yeah. be adopted. And then at one point, Tux FM people used to used to do pretty well at 5FM. But from Stellenbosch, there was no precedent. There was, there was mm. no predecessor. Um, there was yeah. no clear path in, and particularly with my very heavy Afrikaans accent, Grant Nash from Grant and Anele used to say that I sounded like a homeless person um, and that I should <laughs> never speak English to anyone on camera or on a microphone. Um, but I've obviously worked on that a lot. I mean, I, I literally couldn't speak English when I was 19. Um, so I had to really break through the barrier that everyone was kind of telling me existed, but also the one that existed in my own head. And then when I was mm. already at five as a music compiler, I had to figure out whether I believed someone with an Afrikaans accent was relevant in that market. Um, and Jack Barra did quite a bit on that on that front yeah. because as soon as he was playlisted and I was obviously directly influencing mm. his playlisting uh, because I wanted yeah. to see what the response would be like and as soon as yeah. we playlisted Kuleras Ake the response from people who were not Afrikaans was strangely fascinating and you know they found it interesting and I realized yes. that being being the Afrikaans chick in an environment where that wasn't the done thing wasn't necessarily a bad thing and I think that that helped me a lot in how I then found my feet at Supersport because just because it hadn't been done before doesn't mean that it's illegal. It doesn't mean that there yes. is no, no use or no point to this. It doesn't mean that um, I'm just riding the coattails of my gender uh, or mm -hmm. riding the coattails of politically correctness. I'm, I am also there to make a contribution, to find a way of broadening the appeal of the product that we are creating. Um, do you, do you think I'm like to, to that extent or that point that you see yourself as as quite a fearless person in the in the sense that you know a lot of people would look at that prospect and go wow that's that's a lot to take on yeah. you know that this is the status quo this is how things are done it's this type of person who does it do you think that from your personality perspective you are quite uh, fear, less fearful than the average person or do you think it's um, something which you just plucked up a lot of courage to do and you know, obviously nervous at the time, but, you know, just made it happen. It was very scary. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that I'm fearless. I've, I've felt it very, very a real level of mm. um, absolute terror. But 
I have always leaned into risk, I think, more than most people. And, and I have a very direct, um, some people would use the word aggressive, way, <laughs> way about me. Um, my mom has, for the longest time, since I was a very young girl, to, said to me, do not be so demanding, please. Because um, people don't respond to that very well. Um, and, and so I think that that luckily... That is probably something that's that stood me in good stead. Obviously, it does tick people off, and I've learned that the hard way. But um, if luckily, I grew up in a household where my mom loves rugby, not my dad, and I only have a sister, and so there was no gender limitation mm -hmm. in our little household space on mm -hmm. who was allowed to have an opinion on the rugby because my dad was reading Landbouwerkblad, and my mom was shouting at the ref because my mom grew up with brothers and a dad who were obsessed with rugby. Okay. And so in, in our in, in our household, there was never this, shh, sit down, the men mm. are now doing this. Um, none of that existed. And I, think, and I think that that changes the way that I also looked at my level of entitlement about being interested in rugby. There was, there was no reason why I couldn't shout at the ref as well. My mom's doing it. Mm. Um, and my mom is this demure Afrikaans tiny that I do not take after in any other way. Um, so if I think that that also obviously helped. Yeah, it's it's interesting that nature versus nurture thing uh, that you're kind of speaking about there because I think a lot of dare I say a lot of sort of Afrikaans people. Um, I can just take my my parents as an example. You know, half half Afrikaans, half English have grown. You know, I can see that there's legacy um, habits there that have been. Mm born out of just purely the fact that that's how things were done um, and depending on your personality you know you either overcome those quite quickly to be the person you meant to be or you that kind of sits with you for the most of your part of your life so it's it's interesting that you kind of perhaps had a, a more fortunate uh, dynamic in that sense but still yeah. I mean there's still a lot of elements that you had to face I think throughout your career which required quite a lot of bold uh, courageous kind of um, decisions that needed to be made along the way. Um, what are some of the the more sort of hair-raising moments along the way without giving anyone a bad rap or uh, <laughs> <laughs> sure. I've divulging? Been told, I mean, I've been told um, that I shouldn't be wearing high heels. I'm tall enough as it is. Um, okay. <laughs> I've been told to perhaps sit down more often because it intimidates my colleagues that I – I'm on eye level with them or taller than some of them. Um, stupid things like that. Um, I've been told that my eyebrows are too dark, literally by people I report to. And I'm like, I was literally born. This, this, is, this is the color they are. Like it doesn't yeah. come off. Um, I've, had, I've had such crazy things. I've literally had emails sent to like five different people cc'd about my hair looking unwashed on camera on a day where I had literally been to the salon. Um, I happened that day to have been to the salon and they had actually blow dried it really nicely. And then there were yeah. emails sent about Elma's hair looking unwashed. Um, so it's, um, I, it's so funny the stuff that sometimes happens behind the scenes because um, you're just like, are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I don't think that that only happens to me. I think mm. that that's just the function of working in this environment that sure. um, <clears throat> your appearance is, I mean, pe people have very direct opinions on, on what you should be looking like um, mm. because you are the face of their product. And this isn't um, by any means just limited to the work that I did at Supersport. This stems from the first TV show I did to 
um, you know, across the board. Sure. Um, you do develop a weird thing in, uh, well, I have, maybe it's a defensive mechanism where um, my appearance is like equipment, <laughs> which sounds weird, but I consider my hair color and makeup and what people give me to wear on camera the way that I think photographers do the kind of cameras and lenses and equipment they use. Um, yeah. It's not who I am. It's mm. a tool of the trade. Um, and you have to really distance yourself from that. Um, I, luckily, yeah. I, I mean, I shaved my hair at university and I never used to wear makeup on campus. And so it's not like I was ever that girl anyway. I, I don't think mm. that I've ever attached um, too much of my self-worth in the way that I carry myself visually. It has only yeah. ever really been a means to an end. Um, mm. And I think that that's helpful when you are a woman who work mm. in a, a very visible environment because you will get very ridiculous criticism, not only from uninformed viewers, people on Twitter, yeah. trolls who say that literally this is a recurring theme that I had a nose job, um, a botched nose job even sometimes, um, when this is literally the nose I was born with. Um, yeah. So you really need to develop as a defense mechanism, I think, a healthy amount of distance between yeah. um, what people think and feel about your appearance and, and how much of that actually impacts on you personally. Yeah. I think a testament to your longevity so far is that very fact that you've um, it hasn't been about the superficial stuff. It's been about the... I guess the intellectual property and the intellectual value add that you you kind of bring to whatever you're doing because I think yeah. innately that's that's where the core value lies. I think as you've alluded to, yeah. Um, I, I just wanted to touch on that point where I mean I still am laughing internally at those ridiculous emails that that flew around. <laughs> Um, the, re the reality being is that they that can knock some people off, you know, the more sensitive people off quite yeah. badly in, in terms of a career. And I think a lot, a lot of people listening will probably face something in their own context mm. to a similar extent. Mm. What was your kind of approach and what has been your approach to overcoming those? I mean, is it just something that duck, water off a duck's back or is it, you know, have you, have you had a process of, of getting over that kind of thing? I think that... What people, and I always explain this to players as well, what people need to understand about particularly being a freelancer and, and, and doing what we do, but being a player is very similar. And I think a lot of people who work independently or as consultants um, or even kind of high-ranking executives who, who really try and make a mark mm. um, is we tend to think that if I just do enough to impress this one key person in this one key position, they one day will have an epiphany, they will have a moment where they'll go, you know, wow, this person has really gone, gone above and beyond, and they will tap you on the back and go, well done, you know, that'll do, pig, that'll do. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and suddenly you, will, you would yeah. have arrived. You would, you would, be, you would mm. receive the recognition you, you have always earned and desired, um, and suddenly that will make everything else worthwhile and all of these poo sandwiches that you've been eating for how long <laughs> suddenly will feel like they were worthwhile. Yeah, but I think that true. in waiting for that recognition, you are giving away a lot of your power. Um, and mm -hmm. in um, taking on board too much of the ridiculous stuff that people said about my appearance, um, I would be giving away that power. Mm. Um, but it extends to far more than what people thought of my appearance. It, it extends to 
um, the criticism you get for the way you do your work, the fact that you don't get the recognition you desire. Um, and I think it extends far beyond people who work in media and rugby players because we all probably look at one person in an organogram somewhere as the linchpin, mm. the kind of the door, the valve that will kind of open up an entire new world of possibilities and, and opportunities for you. If only I yeah. could get this one person to recognize the value that I hold. Um, and I realized a few years ago that if I chose myself, if I was the coach and I went, mm. you know what, you have done enough. What you bring to the table is so cool. If you choose yourself and you find ways of um, bridging that gap in your head where it doesn't matter what someone else thinks of the efforts that I'm putting in, I need to find ways of doing what I'm doing yeah. for me. I need to find ways of finding mm. the... Um, the recognition in myself. If I do work that I honestly love, where I have this, mo I had this moment yesterday mm. where I was interviewing Jake White in a Stratlachkinner's t-shirt sitting here and asking him a brilliant question that someone I know sent in and he gave a brilliant answer to it and I sent them the clip and I was like, look, he answered your question and he was so rad about it. And they were like, how is yeah. this your job? Awesome. And I went, I know, how is this my mm. job? So if you find that if you find that bit of um, validation in yourself where you choose yourself and you go, you are your own coach yeah. going, well done, that was actually bloody good, regardless of what anyone else says. If you're yes. not giving away that power, you tend to start doing better work. And then the recognition almost mm. happens, but then it doesn't matter. Um, for me, if the, the work we did with Rugby World Cup Daily in Japan last year was so much fun to do. I've never worked that hard in my life, but it was so much fun yeah. to do. I enjoyed just being there, just doing it, just putting it out. That if, yes. if someone woke me up now and said all of those episodes were deleted and somehow no one actually saw it, there was no public recognition, nothing comes of it, you will never get any work based on the, these efforts, no one actually saw it, mm. it would still feel worth it for me. Because I yeah. got so much out of it. It was such a thrill to produce. And I think that once yes. you take that power back, um, it often frees you up to not be too reliant. But I mean, I battle with this on a daily basis. So I have not. Yeah, look, it's, it's, it, it's not an e as easy as uh, said as, you know, it, there's a lot more pieces to it. Yeah. But um, I think what you've said is so vital to so many people in that um, it makes you more bulletproof. It makes you more um you know resourceful and i think the last thing that you said which is so key is that it allows you to kind of do or be more free in terms of your work um i think there's a lot of fear out there where people are too scared to put something out because they're too scared of what people are going to say or the, or the reaction to it your ideas it just allows you to be more generous Correct. it just allows you to go you know what i'm going to do this regardless of what your reaction is going to be i'm going yes. to produce this i'm going to put this out there i'm going to share this i'm going to i'm going to literally put my trade secrets out there on a platter for the world to consume because seth godin always says that ideas that are shared go up in value and as soon as you start sharing and generously giving of yourself it's weird how that just attracts more people and yeah. those ideas immediately just like blossom and you've just, I think you've struck such a great chord with, with regards to cultures in businesses or in sports teams and that if that fear of expression is eliminated, you know, and I think it's very difficult, especially in a, 
in a level of a, a box team, et cetera. But if you can somehow eliminate that fear of expression, I mean, yeah. the quality of the output is just, and, yeah. and maybe that's a big difference between the, the setups that worked and that didn't. Uh, yeah. You know, somehow, you know, in that micro environment, whoever the lead was, was maybe able to create a little bit more freedom of, of expression or, you know, amongst Less other fear, things. More generosity. Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm, and I said this to you a few days ago. I'm, I'm fascinated to to hear about the difference between the two World Cups that you've recently, um, you yeah. recently covered. Um, and I think obviously a lot of, not always apples with apples in, in a sense, but you know there were two different, um, two different World Cups. Mm. Speak to sort of about the the two experiences and and what what you sort of took out of those. What's interesting is that I worked with former cricketers in so. At the Cricket World Cup, what would happen is <clears throat> we'd go to the ground in the morning and it's a very long day. Rugby, obviously, is a, mm. is a four or five-hour production. Cricket is a 14-hour production. So you head, at, head to the ground first thing and we'd, we'd record a live show to YouTube. We would do lives on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter. I would literally walk. So Graham Smith would be hosting the toss in the middle for the world feed. And I would be there as he worked, mm -hmm. walked out of the world feed. And we would be live on Instagram. So I'd be padding and say, he's busy over there. We're going to just corner him. And I would walk him off the pitch to the um, commentator's um, area. And as we'd leave the pitch, okay. we would talk through what just happened. Um, for digital. So everything I created went to the digital mm. channels, but we utilized the analysts and the commentators they would use on the world feed. And so I would sit in the break room area, the holding room, where the commentators would all hang mm. out and they would rotate in and out into the commentary room. And so I got to observe them quite closely. I mean, these are guys from all over the world. And I, I do think that there is a very big difference between the a lot of the same people would probably have been, AB de Villiers would probably have been an excellent rugby player. Um, mm. Herschel Gibbs, we know, was an exceptional rugby player. So I'm not saying that rugby players and cricket players are different people, but mm. the environments that they spend a lot of time in do hone, they tend to behave differently. And, and so... Mm. Um, it was really interesting for me to just observe the difference between the rugby guys that I've worked with and, and seeing cricketers from across the world, across cultures and language barriers, um, behaving quite differently because they're, they're more individual in their approach. They, they, they don't, um, I think rugby players um, over so many years have individualism almost kind of clobbered out of them. They, they have to be able yeah. to live in an incredibly tight-knit environment, sevens mm. even more so. Um, yeah. But they, they need to be able to work in groups and excel in group environments where individualism isn't necessarily rewarded. Very, mm. very few rugby players have, have strange kind of interesting um, uh, quirks in their personality because usually yes. that gets rounded over mm -hmm. decades of living in very tight team environments. Whereas I found that cricketers tend to be a little different in that way, and that their their um, eccentricities are rewarded. Um, okay. You know, more kind of weird and wonderful than and edgy and kind of um, uh, raspy. The, the free thinking almost in a way. Are. Yeah, sometimes that gets rewarded, and in their yeah. commentary, they also. They, they also get to exhibit a bit more personality. Um, and I yes. found that really cool. Like that was really nice for me. And I kind of, um, 
when I returned to rugby, felt that I really missed that level of, um, but obviously cricket gives you the space. So you have this mm-hmm. real estate that you get to work with. Yeah. Um, and so that was really interesting. From an organizational point of view, what we did at the Cricket World Cup, we had bigger teams. and We were working at venues. So I was mm-hmm. traveling around the country. I was in, um, I would literally have a travel day match day minus one where you are shooting at the venue the day before the match with both teams as they come into train. So you, you, you packaging content and you're doing a live update and then match day, you are doing live content and you're also rolling out some of the stuff that we shot yesterday. Then you have a travel Mm. day, match day minus one match day, travel day, match day minus one match day. And so that was my life for nine weeks. I literally I was in three different hotels a week. I was on trains every third day. Sometimes I would have a match day where you're at a ground for 14 hours, go to the train station straight from there, train into another city uh, that evening and have a match the next day. Sometimes that match day, match day minus one travel day um, was even compounded into just match day, match day. And I saw Leeds, Liverpool, Newcastle, Bristol, Cardiff, Southampton, I saw a lot of England, which was really interesting and very different to what I've done in rugby before. Because the Rugby World Cup in 2015, I only went where the Springboks went. This time around, I got to Mm. really kind of see the country and I got to cover the Afghanistan team and the West Indies team. And you kind of get to see their personalities a bit more. Um, So so just quickly on that note, um, if you had to move to England right now, you had to move to a certain city, which one would it be? And if you had to follow any team bar South Africa as a result of the World Cup, who would you follow? I would want to, if I couldn't live in London, obviously London is quite special. If I couldn't live in London, I was, this is going to be weird because people who are English don't think so, but I love Manchester. I absolutely loved Manchester. I think Manchester is like the Joburg of England, which is probably why I like it. Um, Manchester is like Berlin and like Johannesburg. Okay. It's, not, it's not the hot sister. It's the one where the stuff happens. Um, okay. so I really enjoyed I really enjoyed um, Manchester. And of the teams that I worked with, I would love to cover – look, the England setup is – the way that England runs professional sport is is phenomenal to behold, both in rugby but mm. in cricket and generally just the way they host events is brilliant. But the Kiwis were great. Yeah. I loved I loved interviewing the Kiwis. Okay. I loved working with them. Their players had a great demeanor. They have a really nice laid-back vibe. And I think that there is definitely a big mm. culture difference between us and the Southern Hemisphere, um, Kiwis, Aussies, and South Africans. And um, people from the Northern Hemisphere, from the subcontinent, obviously, then that's a a Mm. whole different culture in in of itself. But we sometimes Mm -hmm. forget that we really have something in common with our Southern Hemisphere family. Um, I really enjoyed dealing with them. Are the New Zealanders just a little bit more sort of... uh inclusive or is it is it just something that you can't really put a put a finger on as to why is it just the fact that they're more similar to us they're not so serious okay which is weird it's going to sound crazy because it's it's weird to say that a a group of people are not serious but Mm. it really just was this sense of relaxed ease that yeah the ICC crew that I worked with came from all over the world and they they remarked that they got such a nice vibe from the protest 
where the South African guys were just so nice and easygoing and fun, yes. kind of keen to be to do kind of digital stuff with us. And they they had yes. a really nice um, relaxed demeanor when you when you got them on air as well. Um, I didn't get that. Definitely not from from the England players. They they're quite kind of studious. Um, yeah. But um, but definitely the Kiwis are are a lot like South Africa in that sense. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting to hear it from your perspective because I think you you also you form a perception of these teams just from what you see on uh, on TV, etc. And it's obviously different when you you get behind the cameras and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, Manchester is an in- interesting one. I was I assumed you were going to be a Red Devils fan or something. To, to, to <laughs> no, it's not even it's, because of football. I mean, it's, it's also interesting because it's such a sporting hotspot, not not yes. rugby, but sport. Yeah. Yeah. And tell me, you know, to, to to England's credit, I mean, their attendance from a, a sporting point of view is incredible. You know, the number of people they get to games is just, I mean, you can cross sports and it's yeah. pretty much the same story. Yeah. <clears throat> do, you, do you think it's it's a, just part of the culture? Is it the fact that they live in smaller environments there from a home perspective? Is it a combination of everything? Are they just sports mad? What, what, what do you think it is that gives them gives them that edge? It's really interesting because I was trying to figure this out myself. The way they host events is very different. They they really go out of their way to adopt sports that they're not necessarily fans of. Um, so um, I got the sense during the cricket that people really wanted to support the Cricket World Cup, even if they were not cricket fans. Mm. And when I was there in 2015 for the Rugby World Cup, I got the same vibe from people in in, in cities like Birmingham and Newcastle, which they have their own rugby teams. I mean, the Sale Sharks are there and, yeah. and Newcastle has their own. But um that I definitely got a sense that that the wider populace really kind of they get stuck in when when we're yes. hosting something we're all on board, and yeah. um, it does help that it's an hour by train or an hour and a half by train from London to Cardiff. It is just so much easier to get around in the UK, and yeah. as a South African, it's incomprehensible. I yeah. mean, it's a fourteen-hour drive from here to Cape Town, so. Um, and for them, the scale and the breadth, the, the reaches mm. of South Africa is unthinkable. Um, yeah. and, 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 even, um, and even places like, like New Zealand and Australia where cities are just spread out more, it is harder to really adopt a sporting event the way they can in, in England and yes. in the UK in general and in Europe for that matter. Yeah. Um, so it does, it does serve them well, but I do think that there is a, there is a culture of sport being important. People live in small houses, um, in highly concentrated areas, and they have an active desire to get out, attend events, um, be be physically active themselves, participate in the game on a grassroots level. And, mm. and that was quite cool to see. So it, it actually sparked another question, which I think a lot of our listeners, well, at least the sports mad ones, would, would love to know. So you've been to a lot of... Um, stadiums now as a result of your travels etc what is your favorite favorite stadium to uh to work in tough question it's it's obviously yeah look um that's really hard for me to answer because it it also i think every event draws a different crowd and the Mm. way that the south african anthem is sung in port elizabeth is something to behold really oh it's like i have goosebumps thinking of it um the times that I've worked on Test Rugby in Port Elizabeth, it, like that entire town goes nuts. It's not mm. a busy city. It's, I mean, it's quite like small and sleepy. Yeah. 
and yeah. they just go off their heads for rugby. Um, I love <laughs> the way that, that PE hosts rugby, and I love the way they sing the anthem. So when that stadium in Port Elizabeth is actually full, it is spectacular. Yeah. Um, I love Lords for just how lordsy it is. It's just, mm. I mean, it's it's like a relic from a bygone era in some <laughs> weird way. Um, and obviously it was just a spectacular event to have been there for that final because it was so noisy and so unlike Lords, the way that, yes. that that match, because the ICC took over the venue and so it wasn't the yes. ICC running the show anymore. So it was with, very with different. Otopis, with the Otopis still scoring with their books in the in the members section. So that, yeah, so that little pavilion was like this little outpost yeah. of like yes. old school cricket vibe and the rest of the ground was singing Sweet Caroline, which is like being at Loftus only oh, in amazing. London, um, which was nice. <laughs> And um, I think as far as um, just once-off occasions, obviously Yokohama Stadium at the Rugby World Cup final was mm. crazy because I don't think South Africans realize. Because on TV what they did, I, I watched it back and they cheated you. They yes. showed you on TV, <laughs> they showed these small pockets of South Africans where it looked like they were just green. But they mm. showed you every South African that was in that ground. Possibly. They, they showed you every <laughs> single one of them. It was 98% okay. England support. I, I felt like wow. at one point when I was on the pitch after the match, I looked behind me and saw Ramaphosa, Yuri Ru, um, Mark Alexander, a few dignitaries were standing behind me and the players' wives were making their way down onto the pitch. And at that stage, I realized that there were probably more South Africans on the grass now than there are in the stands. Mm. We were wow. so few and far between that winning and winning that way in a stadium in Japan where yeah. there were just so many England fans. And then they started playing Naviak Leifi. Broke <laughs> my brain into that was like that was a moment where I was just like, I've been in Japan for eight weeks now. Yeah. They are playing Naviak Leifi on the PA system in Japan. And 98% of the people in the stadium is wearing England regalia. So that was just, I mean, watching the president cry behind me, listening to Novik oh. Leifi on the PA system, that was nuts. That was like, I didn't feel like that was real. Because there's a clip of you, I think I think they only showed it much later after the World Cup, of, of you and your reaction to when I think we won. And it was you then running onto the field, I think it was. Yeah. Was that, so that, that right? was from Rugby World Cup Daily. That was the final show. Okay. So what we did on Rugby World Cup Daily, which was a World Rugby production, was I vlogged from the stadium for key matches. Like I yes. vlogged from the stadium for Japan-Scotland. Um, I vlogged from the stadium for the first South Africa-New Zealand match. But then the rest of the shows were not done from stadium. So that's the big difference between the Rugby and Cricket World Cup. Rugby World Cup, I was based in, a, in an office. I had a desk. Mm -hmm in Tokyo, and I couldn't travel around Japan because we had to deliver a show every day. Okay. Um, and so every single day for eight weeks, I didn't have a travel day. I had, didn't have a match mm. day minus one. It was just go, go, go. And that's okay. why I couldn't go to venue. But I did go to venue for about six games, mm -hmm. and the final was going to be the last match day vlog, where it literally is just me and a GoPro camera on the train, walking to the stadium, talking to people, going, wow. woo! <laughs> and then obviously also crying. Um, yeah. <laughs> so that clip that you saw was the GoPro was still rolling, but I wasn't actively shooting. Okay. I 
I cried, obviously, an immense amount and tried not to. But then the edit, I'm not sitting in the edit because I'm sleeping. So what we had a team, we had a dual team system where I had a cameraman with me who had a camera okay. and then my little GoPro. And we were shooting footage, but we shot seven, eight hours of footage. And now yeah. we've had a long day. Show needs to go out tomorrow. So we hand over the footage. And then someone else sits and ingests and edits it. And then it goes out after another team member has reviewed it. Wow. So it's this relay because there's not enough of us and we need sleep. Yeah. So I didn't see that until it, it had already gone out. And, and the other thing is I wasn't actively filming. It was just me still vlogging. I'm walking around yes. with a GoPro in my hand like this. And I cried. I did <laughs> film myself crying with other fans. And I was holding the camera as I was walking, wiping away my tears, which is what you see, because I was trying to compose myself and then talking to the camera. But obviously, you're only seeing the edit. So I wasn't just gratuitously bawling on yeah. camera consistently, but obviously, this is real life. And then when I, I, was, yeah. I was waiting downstairs because we had these set up interview areas and we were allocated one and my cameraman was going to come join me and I was going to interview players. So I interviewed Cheslin and his wife. I interviewed um, The Beast. I interviewed Sia. So, so the um, accredited media, mem members of the media and then World Rugby, we each had a little bay. So I was okay. waiting next to the pitch for the bays to be set up so that once they lift the trophy and they should like spray the champagne, yeah. then the players would be circulated around to us. Mm. And I was just standing there waiting, obviously crying because I could just see the president crying behind me, which was yeah. weird. And then they start playing Novik Leifi and my brain can't cope anymore. And I'm literally just like, <laughs> and the next thing Sia notices me and he comes over and we did have this conversation yeah. probably a, about two months before the World Cup, where I did say to him, we were talking about something else and decisions that he'd taken in his career. Um, he was going to go to Japan and then he decided to stay in South Africa, stay on mm -hmm. in South Africa after the Rugby World Cup regardless. Mm -hmm. And he said he couldn't go to Japan because he, he, he couldn't go play in Japan, go play club rugby in Japan because he went home to Zwede and he just saw the need in his township and he couldn't um, leave. There's so much work that needs to be done here. And, um, and he said years before in another entirely different conversation to me that his responsibility is towards his immediate family. He needs mm. to make as much money as he can while he's playing rugby because that's his job. He needs to yeah. look after his people. And then he'd had this moment where he thought, you know what, I can still make enough money to look after my family and my immediate people without leaving the country. And I think mm. I should stay here. And then I said to him this, this, in this conversation two months before the World Cup, but if, if you are giving up the opportunity to go make a lot of cash in Japan um, because you feel like you need to do some work here, then mm. the only way that you're going to be doing, be able to do really brilliant work here is if you win the World Cup. There's no point in going to Japan yeah. and finishing fourth mm -hmm. if you want to really be able to change stuff in South Africa. The most important thing you can actually do is win the World Cup. That's mm -hmm. where everything starts, and th sure. that is that is ultimately going to give you the platform to really affect change. Yeah. You have the it's open in front of you now. You just need to win it here and then go. Mm -hmm. And then he said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." And so that's what he was alluding to when he walked up and he said, "You told us to win it. You you told us to win the World Cup, and we did it." Oh, wow. And it was because because we'd had that conversation where I said, "There's no point in staying behind in South Africa and playing your Super Rugby here." 
if you are sure. not going to win the World Cup, you're never going to reach the heights that you really can. You, you're never going to yeah. have that impact that you impact. The, mm. that the potential needs to be fulfilled there. Um, wow. And so that's what he was referring to. It, mm. it wasn't a, I said it. It was more a conversation around, this is your potential. You now need to live up to it. This is your mm. gap. You probably, no one knows whether you're going to be fit in four years' time. So you need to win yeah. this World Cup with what, what you have and the people you have around you. Absolutely. And it was quite touch and go, I suppose, from an injury point of view for him. Exactly. <laughs> Leading up. Yeah. So, so. so I said, and, and so that's what he, was, uh, what he was referring to. But I wasn't, I, I didn't know that we'd captured this. Because <clears throat> I was, I think I was holding it in my left hand and the camera was dropped down below. So I just yes, hugged it. That's right. And that's also why you hear me. I mean, it's so embarrassing, just <laughs> crying because I wasn't, I wasn't planning on filming this. It was just the moment where I couldn't cope with what was happening like right now. Well, you're now. not going to get any more authentic and real than that. So. Yeah. I, I mean, mean yeah. You know, yeah. Now, <laughs> watching it back, I'm just like, oh, could I not just have cried nicely? Uh. And I think you'll look back on that one day when you call it a day and it'll be one of the, the more special moments, I'm sure. Yeah. Wow, yeah. Thanks for sharing that with us. It's it's uh, it's such a – I mean, obviously, we were all going berserk on this side, but it, was, it must have been quite special to be that close to the um, to to the action and, and obviously to Cyril and all that kind of stuff. We, yeah. Especially at this time, we certainly need to remember those, those moments. Um. I wanted to ask you one or two last questions just yes. with regards to, uh, especially on the productivity side, you, you, you run a really hectic schedule in, in the normal sphere of things. You're up early every day. You, you're doing a lot of things, you know, for, for the people that really are trying to be more productive, because I think, you know, the one commodity we just don't have enough of is time. How do you, is there anything you can share like that really works for you in terms of just keeping, keeping yourself ahead of the game, just just making sure that, you know, you're not on, not on the back foot, even though sometimes there are some curveballs that come along. I think the thing is just that I, I'm not one of those people who does one thing well. So yeah. I recognized very long ago that I kind of constantly need to have three things going because having too much on my plate is the only thing that focuses me into being really productive. Mm-hmm. Um, the more I do, the more I seem to be able to do. The less I do, the less I seem to be able to do. Interesting. Yeah, so I think knowing yourself and knowing what, what gets gets you going and creating that environment for yourself is obviously key. Yeah, um, yeah. That's very interesting. And then the other question that we always ask our guests at the end of the interview, um, which is quite a unique one, I suppose, is that if you could, and as a well-traveled individual, this might be quite quite a challenge for you, but if you could visit only one restaurant for the rest of your life, oh. Uh, which which restaurant would that be? I would probably force my husband to open one because he cooks like a dream. All of my favorite dishes are ones that he makes. Um, and I'm very, very fortunate in that we've got a kitchen right here and, he, and I'm mm-hmm. holed up with him for 21 days. Um, <laughs> I think the thing, the restaurant would probably be Van der Linde, which is a local restaurant here in my neighborhood that I can mm-hmm. walk to. Um, yes. which I love because they make a nice variety of stuff and they make the best eggs Benedict in all of Johannesburg. Well, there you go. It's, uh, that says all about your personality. I think anyone who enjoys the good eggs Benedict knows where, they, <laughs> where, they, where they're grounded. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think a world without a good eggs Benedict would be a, Ooh, sad. a very sad place. Sad, sad, um, sad. Yeah, Hollandaise sauce is an art in itself, I think. Oh. I, mean, I just want to say thank you so much for your time. It's been really, really awesome to chat. 
I think I think the listeners can take so much value out of your context and your story. And yeah, I think just acknowledge what you've done and in, in a not a an easy way and not just a bit of sort of an, an easy path. You've done an amazing job. So we want to wish you every success in the future. And um yeah, I look forward to following that progress as you as you carry on. Oh, thank you, man. Thanks for um thanks for the chat. It was uh, really yeah. good fun. Um, and if anyone disagrees with me or has strong opinions or feels like they really relate to anything I've said, please tell me. Um, I generally really don't mind people either throwing stones or giving high fives. <laughs> where, where can uh, where can everyone get hold of you or follow you and and sort of follow your journey from here? At Alma Kabalma on Twitter and on Instagram. I'm on TikTok as well, but I'm still figuring that one out. So don't, don't okay. go there. Just That's yet. it for today, guys. <laughs> if this episode brought you value, please do subscribe to the podcast series. And for more information on building your organizational culture, visit us at rcaconsulting.biz. We'll see you in the next episode.